very professional setup though both of you like microphones and everything it, it looks so much better when we're like in person like on like the table and everything you've, uh, you've adapted very well to the current times so gotta do it um, is there any particular way you want to be introed by me before I pass it to no, you? No, I'm actually quite curious how you'd intro me. So I'm, I'm looking forward to you trying to pronounce a surname. Oh, uh, like you, I don't try to pronounce surnames. I can't do it. So please do. It'll it'll be interesting. Uh, I'll save you know my mispronunciations for other episodes, and I'm going to get less <laughs> roasted. I bet you missed it. <laughs> I don't know what that means. What do you mean? I, I bet. In I like. Because in, in first, second, third year, people said I was missing. <laughs> it wasn't intentional. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I was like, oh, I didn't mean to. Sorry. No, no, it's fine. I mean, I didn't I didn't think anything of it. Like, I, I didn't know that this was said, but I'm not surprised that that was the impression. Apparently, I was going to Hamish and it, it wasn't <laughs> intentional. <laughs> I mean, like... Uh, it, I just thought everyone was. Yeah, yeah. It didn't phase <laughs> me. So. No, exactly. Like, I think initially I didn't understand your sense of humor, but once I did, I was like, oh, no, that's just, you know. You wouldn't be the first. <laughs> no, but now I find it funny. So it's like, it's interesting how, like, you know, you grow and then you look back at it and you're like, oh. Yeah, I was ahead of my time, innit? You are. You are, truly. <laughs> All right. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Third Wheel. I'm one of your hosts, Hamish. And I'm your other host, Aaron. And today we're joined by a guest called Bianca. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. I'm Bianca. I'll uh, let Hamish do the rest of the introductions because he said he would. And you'll get to know me a little bit better throughout this episode. Sweet, yeah. So I guess we'll start with the usual, how we met. I don't exactly know when me and Bianca first met. I would assume it's through like Liana or so on. I think it might have been through Jitten, actually. Yeah, that, that is very plausible. Yeah, like that kind of like group, I guess. Yeah. Or Alex even, maybe from my side. Yes, that's also a possibility. I think it was likely a house party that we had in halls and then you guys came and, and that's where we met but yeah you actually speaking of alex you you both did law we did yeah you did law and sociology correct someone i talked to linkedin earlier so it's <laughs> <right>. <laughs> exactly like you didn't know as well I'm like... <laughs> yeah i gotta pretend like i just knew <laughs> yeah and you did you both did pathways to law i think that's how you both kind of knew each other right no so Yes, we both did Pathways to Law, but that was we did it at separate universities. So I didn't know Alex before I came to Warwick, but we both worked for Pathways to Law from second year onwards, I think. So what is Pathways to Law? Pathways to Law is a pre-university program aimed at introducing students to the academic environment of law. So because law in practice and law in theory are two very different things if you think you might want to go into law you can do the pathways to law in during your a levels and decide if that's the right path for you to take it didn't for me in the sense that even though i knew that i wanted to be a lawyer by the end of university i decided that wasn't the right career path so what was the my current employment of choice What is it you do and what is, if you want to say, what is Yeah, so I'm a technical account manager at Microsoft. So I decided in my penultimate year of law school that it wasn't the right career path for me at that point. Maybe in the future I might change my mind, but yeah, I just did a, a complete turnaround and decided that I wanted to work in tech and as much as possible specialize in AI. Yeah, I actually noticed that from, we'll probably speak about Hong Kong in a bit, but at Hong Kong, you did quite a lot to do with AI, yeah. like module-wise. So um, the education system in Hong Kong is a lot more flexible. So the modules are done very widely, and you can choose what your essays 
a specialized on unlike Warwick. So with Warwick, obviously you have one essay question or five maximum that you choose from. At Hong Kong University, you pitch your own essay title. And then if it's approved by the professor, you can write on that. Okay, that's pretty cool. So at Warwick, what kind of, was there a turning point that kind of made you switch from law to tech? Um, so I still have a qualifying law degree. I can still go into law at any point, And I wanted to make sure that I finished my law degree just for that purpose, because you never really know in the future. But I think third year before I went to Hong Kong, I started having doubts in that I wasn't really enjoying it anymore. And even though the academic side of it is completely different to the practical side of it, if you wake up in the morning and you're not happy, there's something not okay with it. And then I found out that someone had dropped out of their year abroad in Hong Kong. I kicked some doors down. Well, not literally, you know, pestered a few people with emails and thought my way into that year abroad. And while there, I realized that it just wasn't the right lifestyle for me to be a lawyer. I, I wanted the freedom to travel and I wanted to be in, in an industry that evolved constantly and, and that was tech. So, Is it possible to like combine the two? Not currently. I think that was another reason why I didn't want to go into law because in the future, artificial intelligence law will definitely be progressive and it will be a thing. But for now, it's very reactive um, and a very small percentage of, of legal matters are related to AI. So, And you're also president of the Law Society. President of the Commercial Law Society. What's the difference between the two? Um, so Commercial Law Society focuses more on being a solicitor. So going into corporate IP, things like that. Whereas the Law Society has three sectors. So you can go and be a barrister. You can also be a solicitor. They do cover that. And they also cover the academic side of it. So ours was specifically focused on being a commercial lawyer. Okay, cool. How much work was it like to be like the president of the society? It's like another full-time job. Yeah. Looking back at it, it doesn't seem like that much. It seems like a lifetime ago, I'm going to be really honest. And I feel like because time has passed, it doesn't feel as recent anymore. But at the time, I remember being borderline overwhelmed with how much I had on. Because obviously, you've got to take into consideration like the law firms sponsor you and they pay a certain level of sponsorship to be part of that society as well. So you've got lawyers that need your attention. You've got students that need your attention. You've got your own degree. I had a few jobs, so it was a lot. How easy was it to like get sponsors and stuff? It was fun. It wasn't easy. It was basically, so you had a sponsorship pack and it, it was ranked in levels. So you had silver, bronze, silver, and gold. And you'd go to the law firms after emailing them and, and setting up an appointment and you'd pitch the society to them and the benefits it would bring them. Coincidentally, Warwick is quite well regarded by law firms. So in that sense, it was relatively easy to sell it. But obviously, they can go for any other society as well. So it was a lot of fun at the time. I do. I am happy that I've done it. What were they gaining from it? Like the law firms, just kind of exposure? Yeah. So things like we had hoodies and they're branded with law firm logos coming onto campus. We brought students to their offices. So it was a bit of mutual exchange. We obviously gained a lot from being sponsored and vice versa. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I'm only thinking of like, yeah, well, if we want to get sponsored as a podcast, like how to, <laughs> I guess, approach that. I can definitely help you with that. That, like was, that. that was fun. I do miss doing it. So if oh, Was it just loaded like emails? Yeah. Kind of just emailing? I think or I guess they already had the contacts in the first place, being a society. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So it wasn't a case of cold calling or cold emailing. It was a case of, you know, they already knew us. They had worked with us in the past. It was just maintaining that relationship. Okay, nice. And then I also saw you're a web intern. I was for a indeed. While. And that was for Warwick. <laughs> that was for Warwick, yes. 
the website still live and going. What? Yeah, what was it for? It was so, it, People that know me will know that I cannot not have something to do all the time. And in the summer between my third year and leaving for Hong Kong, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I applied to a few internships and also applied to Warwick for the, what was it called? Something like the summer something internship. And you got a list of all of the available internships at Warwick. And one of them was for the widening participation program. They needed someone to redesign their website in theory to basically create the draft for someone else to implement the, the redesign. Um, but I finished it early. So then I worked with the university to actually create the website and, and have a finished product. How was that? How did you find it? It was a lot of work. It was literally a full-time job. So I moved back to campus for I remember, between six and eight weeks. And I was working every single weekday for Warwick. So it was quite intense. It was a lot of work. It was definitely a shock to the system compared to the student lifestyle that we have at Warwick. Yeah. But it was great. I, I learned a lot. Didn't you make it onto the website? as a like? I thought there was a banner of you on the website. There was a banner of me on the website, yes. And there was also, do you remember the uh, the flags? It's around campus, campus. right? Wait, there's a, what, something around campus? So the flags around campus. We used to have those yeah. big banners around campus. I was on one of those as well. Oh <laughs> so that was related to the web internship? No. So the, the banner thing was for the Commercial Law Society because I was the president. They didn't even tell me about it. I right. woke up one morning to a message from Alex, funnily enough, saying, why are you on campus so early? <laughs> And a photo of the banner. And I was like, oh, okay, why is my face on there? Alex, by the way, is a uh, used to be a housemate of mine at university. Hasn't been on the podcast yet, but well, he should hopefully be. We, we can get him on at some point. <laughs> yeah, that's surprising. They didn't even like, I don't know, let you know that your face is going to be... I didn't mind. Wait, they, they, they had a picture of you already? Like they did the professional shoot already? Or like, was it like yes, just randomly? The professional randomly? shoot was for a campaign that they had done. I think it was called Creative Warwick. That was never meant to get out of, of the website. That was just meant to be like a side project. And then, yeah. So that web internship, what kind of like timeline was that? So that was the summer before I left Hong Kong. So I finished the internship and I think I had about a week to pack my bags and move across the world. Did you have any idea before doing the degree that you did want to do a year abroad? No, or anything? not at all. Um, so I actually applied for straight law and then I had an email from Warwick saying that they think I'd be more suitable to law and sociology because I had high grades in sociology at the time during my A-levels. Well, 17-year-old Bianca wanted to do a postgraduate degree and wanted to potentially go into academia. So I thought, yeah, why not? I'll, I'll do that. So instead of doing three years, I'll do four. And then I wasn't actually aware that you could do a year abroad until, well, as part of my degree, I knew that you could do it generally. Yeah, and yeah. then in third year, I overheard someone saying that he didn't want to do his year abroad anymore. And he caught me at a time in my life where it felt quite transitional and I was ready for a change. So I turned around to said person and, and asked him for the email of the of the lady he was talking to. And I emailed her and said, hey, I know someone's dropped out. Can I please go? She said, absolutely, categorically, no. Who are you? Why do you want to do this? Please go away and stop pestering me. And then I emailed back and I said, listen, I, I didn't realize how much I wanted this until you've just said no to me. Can I? Wait, did you actually say that? I did. There's, I still have the emails. <laughs> I luckily happened to come across someone who had just gotten into the role and she said I promised myself that 
people who would want to go abroad will get the chance to. So let's see what we can do. Unfortunately, we kept getting blocked. So I actually found out officially that I was going on a year abroad about a month before I was due to leave. And my visa didn't arrive until Mm. about a week before I left. So, yeah. (laughs) There were a lot of hiccups. I had to fight for it. I had to fight tooth and nail to get to go to Hong Kong um, because so many things went wrong. And I almost didn't make it. And, and every other email was, you're not going because you're meant to graduate next year. And there is no way for us to add an extra year onto your degree because it's already four years. Five years of law school is unheard of. During all of this manic, like what did you, I don't know if you told your parents and what, the, what they thought. So I did this on an absolute whim. I didn't actually think that I was going to get in. I'm going to be really honest. But I think when people kept saying no to me, it became a challenge. And I thought, I really want to do this. I want to see if I can achieve this. I turned around to my mom and I said, hey, I might be going to Hong Kong. And she just laughed. And she said, hey, you know, I I support you. And whatever you do, I'll always have your back. If you want to go, go. And we'll see what happens. Yeah, I think think it was pretty similar for me when I was going to San Francisco, kind of. I applied for it just kind of half pushed by Hamish and some other people to apply for it. I was a bit lazy with actually doing anything. And then I told my mom that I applied for it. And then I was kind of like, you know what? I think I actually do kind of want to go uh, if I get like the chance kind of thing. It's just kind of like a once in a lifetime opportunity, probably the best way to do it. I don't know about you, but it was the best decision of my life. It changed who I am. I came back a different person. And as as much as I hate the cliche of people going, oh, I went on a year abroad and I became this amazing person because of it. (laughs) You know, I I do feel like I came back a different person. I don't know. I, I don't know if I came back a different person, but... It's, def- it's definitely like a decision I don't regret, mm. as in, like, I'm, I'm really, I had such a good time, and, like, it was a once-in-a-lifetime experience for me, yeah. but I'm glad I did it. I'm also glad to be back, kind of thing. Yeah, so you get the approval to go to Hong Kong. Just about. And it's like, a, yeah, just about. <laughs> it's a month. So you're also studying there. It's not like just a year. No, I was, I was studying there. So on there were a lot of complications because I actually applied on the day of the deadline for Hong Kong University when I found out and they don't normally accept people that close to the deadline so I was really lucky but yeah I, I studied at HKU for a year and um, what do you study law just straight law yeah and then I saw on your LinkedIn like there was it was a lot to do with artificial intelligence was that is that kind of like a speciality at that university or something or is that just kind of what you chose it's what I made of it so I when I got there, first of all, it was a shock to the system. I got off the plane and I thought, oh my God, what have I done? Because I, at no point did I actually fully have time to, to sit down and think about what I was doing. I was kind of just going through the motions because I really wanted it. And then when I stepped off the plane, that's when it hit me. I just moved myself to Hong Kong. <laughs> did you know anyone? No. <laughs> and I also lived in a private college that I was interviewed for. At four o'clock in the morning, UK time. And when I got there, I got there with two suitcases. It was in the middle of a typhoon. My flight had gotten cancelled twice. And I, I landed and I was just soaked. And it was the worst humidity I'd ever experienced. And suddenly I get to this college and it's just stairs. It's this really regal looking building. And there was no one around. And so I like log the suitcases up, up the stairs and I get in and I'm trying to find people to, to have a conversation with and say, hey, I've arrived. And no one's even expecting me to arrive. Everyone was kind of like, who are you and what are you doing here? And then we had a language 
area. So yeah, it was an experience. It, living in that college was one of the oddest experiences of my life. What does regal mean? Royal. Oh, I didn't want to be that person. But, and... <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> it was uh, people's English like? Uh, it was actually, when you first arrived. It was it was great. Yeah. I never really had problems with communication. Very rarely do I have problems with communication when it when I was there. But I think people were always really welcoming and really willing to to try their best to speak to you. I took Mandarin, which was impossible to learn. It, it's incredibly complex. And so I knew kind of the, the bare basics of Mandarin. So whenever I tried to speak in Mandarin, people would just interject in English and say, I don't know what you need with like the perfect <laughs> British accent. And I'll be like, hello, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, and then what's like, if you're comparing Warwick University and how the kind of degree was taught there and then Hong Kong University? Very, very different. So I just realized I didn't answer your previous question about the the AI element of it. So Essentially, I opted for my classes. So I looked for a list and I chose my classes. There was nothing compulsory. And each, you could you could choose your module so that they would fit into your calendar. So I chose modules that would be between Tuesday and Thursday so I could have Monday and Friday free to travel. So <laughs> that is a lot like of a long weekend. get at Warwick, as, as we all know. And then I feel like the teaching style was very different. For me, it was a lot more suited to the way I ingest information than Warwick so it was a lot freer in terms of what was being taught you could kind of if out of the 11 weeks that you were being taught you liked a particular topic and you knew you're going to write your essay on that particular topic you could just focus on that so you would still go to class you would still absorb the information but you knew that your focus at the end would be on one particular lecture which is not the same at Warwick and then in terms of the the essays, again, very, very different to, to how we've got them at Warwick. I'm assuming that in computer science, it was different for you guys anyway to what I experienced in the law department. But it was just a lot more freedom and a lot more tailored to, to the individual students. When you say like AI, so for those of the people who don't know, it means artificial intelligence. Um, I was curious as to, because it's a very broad topic, I just wanted to like know a bit more about what you studied and then I guess what you got into. So the modules that I took, well, a few of them anyway. So I took a postgraduate module in artificial intelligence specifically because I wanted to learn more, especially being on that side of the world. I took China's investment law, human rights, media law, intellectual property and practice, and a bunch of other modules that I can't remember now. And basically with each of them, I tried to find the artificial intelligence angle in that particular class and then tailored my essays to that. So I'd pitch an essay title to the professor. And then if he accepted it, I would then write on AI for that particular topic. So for me, law, for example, I spoke about technology, art, and how artificial intelligence might have rights in the future to its like creations which is not the case at the moment. So AI having rights to where it creates ways rather than the person who makes the program in the first place or makes yes. the AI. And also you have the whole monkey selfie debacle. So if the monkey took the selfie, does the monkey have the rights to the photo or does the human that owns the camera have, have the rights to, to the photo? And it's the same with artificial intelligence. So in the future, if you program something to create a piece of art, 
are you the owner of the intellectual property of that art or is the AI the owner? What were you arguing? It could happen in the future, but we're still human and that's very unlikely. So sat on the fence very comfortably and went, this is one side, this is the other side. Who knows? I think I'd be fuming if like a program I created got the rights (laughs) to something that that program created. Imagine you got the rights to making the money from it, Aaron, then you just sat there, you created a program that you can't earn money from and it's just going off doing its thing. You know, you, you you bring in the argument of a program having rationality and experiencing what we experience as humans in terms of our idea of ownership you know so there's so many ethical questions that come into this it's it's not a simple answer but it was definitely really fun to to write and to try and find that artificial intelligence angle in every single one of my modules that I took at HKU and being allowed to do that. So did you almost have to do like an AI course as well? So I chose to do an AI course to give you a bit of background, so before I left for Hong Kong, I started being interested in artificial intelligence and okay. wasn't sure which way I wanted to go with it. I assumed I'd go into artificial intelligence law at some point, even though it doesn't really exist. And then when I went to Hong Kong, I knew that I wanted to learn more about it. So I tailored my degree to that. And the professors were willing to, to let me do that. And then to contribute to my understanding of artificial intelligence, I took that postgrad course in, in AI in practice, and that helped with the foundation. No, that sounds really interesting, to be honest. I didn't know, like, I know you think of law from the outside, and it's kind of just courtrooms and stuff like that. You don't, <laughs> I think people from the outside don't really think much, like, outside of that. Did you watch Suits, Bianca? Of course I watched Suits. <laughs> what did you think of it? Because you're, I guess you studied law, so you must think of some, so something I, bullshit. I started and then I stopped and now I've started again at this stage. Do you know what? It's very glorified. So I think if you watch Suits mm. and you decide to go into law because you've watched Suits, you're going to have a very big shock of what law actually is like, what a law firm is like. Because yes, it does to some extent have that glamorous part, but a lot of the work isn't what you see on TV. And so, yeah, I, I would advise anyone who wants to go into law to take suits with a pinch of salt. Great TV show. Don't yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah that's, that's pretty much what most of my uh, knowledge of law is from. And I, I was on jury duty as well. Oh, were you? For... Oh, that's exciting. Are you allowed to speak of it? No. On a... I don't know. I think I am. Now it's uh, over. Can you right. not bring legal complications to that? <laughs> <laughs> to add to that, I took a module in Hong Kong called Trust in Practice. And the professor walked in and said, I'm basically going to teach you partially how to save money on tax. And I was like, oh, thanks. It <laughs> 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 was like, just, just to let you know, really fun guy. He's a professor from Oxford taught really really well i yawned once in his class and he told me to go and get a coffee and i thought he was joking and he was like i'm not kidding go and get yourself a coffee and he gave us a 10 minute break so i could go get myself a coffee and come back that's pretty cool yeah i also had a professor send me home once because i looked sunburned so you literally went you look at the flag (laughs) please go home and i again i thought he was joking and he was like no i genuinely think you should go home and i was like thanks bye How how big were like the lectures and classes? Same as Warwick, except the lectures and seminars were lumped together in one class. So you know how at Warwick you have a one hour lecture followed by like a half an hour seminar or an hour seminar. 
and those adopted around yeah. in Hong Kong you had one big lecture and seminar together and the the class would last anything between two to three hours well, I can't two, oh, man. Well, I could not be in a lecture room for even one hour yeah I used to fall asleep in one hour lectures <laughs> like after 10 minutes <laughs> so i don't know how i have to say i felt the same way like when i first found out i thought okay this is going to be a challenge but i think they were definitely very engaging so i think you almost forgot that it was three hours long and you would get breaks yeah. so it wasn't quite that intense and what about like in your class or in your lecture were there many international students yeah yeah it, it depends on the module as well so i think depending on the uptake for that um there was a mix but i i got to meet so many people from so many countries and obviously warwick is very international but compared to hong kong mm. not quite so yeah and not any many from the uk yes and no i can't really remember if i'm gonna be really honest i think i did end up meeting quite a lot of people from the uk but i can't really remember how many of them were in my classes and how many of them i met outside yeah wait what are the like differences i guess what are some differences, either good or bad, or just neutral, between like Hong- studying at Hong Kong and studying at Warwick? Apart from the essay thing you mentioned earlier. I um, think, like- so first of all, obviously at Warwick, you've got professors that have been hired by Warwick, whereas at Hong Kong University, they had a lot of guest lecturers. So I was taught by someone from Stanford. I was taught by someone from Harvard. I had a professor from Yale for climate change law, which was such an amazing module. I had people from China, from Hong Kong. It was just, it was a lot more diversity and bringing in the culture of those universities into HKU, which is not the case with, with Warwick. But those guest lectures, just one-off lectures or no, like no. a whole? So my climate change lecture, which was taught by the professor from Yale, was seven weeks long. Okay. That's pretty cool. And climate change as well. That's Yeah. And his way of, of teaching the class was to, you'd basically read the material and then you would submit a one page essay on what you've read. And then he would mark that as your final essay. So he never had one big final essay at the end. He would just mark little pieces of work and then he'd put them together and he'd give you a grade at the end. Mm, nice. What about like, do, do you have like written exams? Nice. Like sit down exams like end so, of the year? Again. I tailored, I hate exams, I yeah, yeah. like essays. So I only chose modules that had essays because I wanted to travel and write my essays at the same time. So I wrote one of my biggest essays, which was 7,000 words on a plane between Hong Kong and India. <laughs> Probably shouldn't own up to that. Did it do well? Because yeah, yeah, I got an A, thank you. Yeah, that doesn't matter. Light work. Yeah, so that's why I didn't want to be stuck in, in Hong Kong for exams so i only took essay modules and i only took modules that fell on a tuesday wednesday or thursday okay and then before we get into like some of like the traveling you did just like hong kong in general yes. just living there rather than the actual like studies amazing what was what was that like it was it was a shock to the system it's a very different world so first of all i was treated like an absolute princess for a year there's no other way to put it in words <laughs> i will never be able to go clubbing in the uk ever again after experiencing clubbing and nightlife in Hong Kong it's something completely different and then also because they've got hiking trails and beaches and a lot of things you could basically a day felt like so much more than 24 hours 
it was you could pack so we'd wake up in the morning we'd go hiking we'd go to the beach we'd run to class and then we'd go out and we'd end up in a mansion somewhere for a party that just doesn't happen in the uk (laughs) so that's like movie shit it was truly the best year of my life so far it i can't put it into words i'll try but it, it was incredible what was so good about going to nightclub in hong kong compared to you so first of all they've got these things called ladies nights so i will never accept a drink from someone in the club ever and in hong kong they have this thing where the clubs themselves give you drinks for free on certain days of the week's potentially to prevent the whole culture of like a guy buying you a drink is that actually why I, I don't know it might be well it could be one of two things let's go on the positive side of this is probably why <laughs> but on the other side it's because they want girls to go to the club but very rarely had to pay for my own drinks um, not that it's a problem but it's definitely an, an interesting kind of scenario to be in because i remember the first time i walked into a bar and i tried to pay and they looked at me and they're like no no and i was just standing there thinking oh i don't really can i take so it's just an open bar yeah, uh, all night club another thing is a lot of the bars are on rooftops so the views are incredible I, I don't think i'll ever be able to get over the view of hong kong from above got me every time still does to this day even just looking at photos and also so to give you an example second night of being in hong kong we go to a bar we are near the vip area having a conversation and suddenly two glasses of dom perignon descend down from the vip area for me and my friend and we look up and we were like no 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 thank you and the guys in there and the girls in there were like no no we just want you to come in to take photos with us and we were like what what do you mean and they're like no we just we just want you to come and join us like there's no ulterior motive we literally just want you to come party with us and be in our photos and that was a trend throughout asia so yeah clubbing is definitely not the same Man, once coronavirus is over, I need to get myself talking. Sorry, is that like a <laughs> is, is that a wine vodka? Like, what is that meant to be? It was a mix of of a lot of things. Um, very good cocktails, top branded champagne. Yeah, it was the good stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't I don't blame you by saying you don't want to go to another club here. <laughs> I mean, we got an invitation to go to a mansion party, and we got the invitation about three hours before we were meant to go, and we just went, yeah, why not? And ended up going to this mansion. We didn't even know the owner. Kind of just rocked up, and everyone was like, "Oh, come join us! This is great!" So yeah, again, I'm picturing like a mansion with like a swimming pool yeah. in the back, and yeah, Bro. that's a yeah. That that it, honestly, it just sounds like a film. And like from you, like your Instagram as well, I could see you, like <laughs> yeah, just living like your best life. It was absolutely incredible. Um, I also met some amazing people that I'm still really good friends with, and. You know, it's just, it was it was genuinely one of the best years of my life. There's no other way to, to describe it. Um, I learned a lot. I traveled a lot. Hong Kong was incredible. And yeah, I felt like I lived freshers on steroids mm. all over again. <laughs> so this bar, if it's it's like a or club, yeah. it's got an open bar. Is it expensive to like enter? It's free entry. <laughs> oh, <man>. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to bring Aaron over to Hong Kong for a year? Just going, and then, no, no, I just, yeah. Oh, it's it's yeah no honestly it's done so well to bring people in how do they make money i don't really know to be honest it's a very good question i think they because they, they charge on certain nights they do make up for it okay hmm maybe no, they sell, maybe the vip is like so luxury that when you pay for it like you must become so profitable maybe 
Yeah. What about like is was it an expense? Is Hong Kong an expensive place to live? I'd say it's on par with London. Um, okay. I think it's certain things that are expensive that you don't expect to be expensive. Things like shampoo, shower gel, like toiletries tend to be quite it's like standard household items. Probably because they're imported. Okay. But things like food, so we'd get one pound sushi, a big plate of sushi, and dim sum and things like that. So there's certain things that you don't expect to be very expensive that are, and then things that are ridiculously cheap. And then, as you mentioned like a few times, so you took Fridays and Mondays off to travel. Yes. And you told me, you messaged me saying you traveled to 13 countries. In 12 months. While you were there. In 12 months. <laughs> it was incredible do you know them can you count can you list them all a list on my phone funnily enough so bear with me while i find this because people ask me this all the time so i've had to write it down so in asia i went to hong kong obviously south korea vietnam india uh macau taiwan singapore malaysia thailand japan cambodia philippines china and then when I came back, I did a bit of traveling in that same year around Europe. So I count those in that entire year. But I had yeah. one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. No, thirteen. There you go. Thirteen in Asia, including Hong Kong. And a few uh, that's, countries that's when I came back. Pretty impressive. <laughs> so what did you just kind of just have the ick for it? So Or it's more like while you're there, it's a good opportunity to travel around. A bit of Asia. both. So initially I just thought, I'm here, I'm probably never going to get this experience ever again. Why not make the most of it and try and go to as many places as I can? And then I went on Skyscanner and I realized that the flights were very cheap. And so it became a bit of a habit to just check Skyscanner. And because the flights were so cheap, I'll just Mm. say, yeah, why not? Like I'll jump on the next flight and go to Singapore this weekend because I've got nothing else to do. And it's now a way I deal with stress. So whenever I feel stressed in any way, I book flights and I go to another country for a weekend. What's the favorite place you visited in those 12 months? Oh, it's very difficult. I think there's a lot of favorites for different countries. It's difficult for me to just pinpoint one and say that was my favorite. I think Cambodia is definitely a highlight. The, The culture was just breathtaking temples i got to watch the sunrise over Angkor Wat, and that just can't be put into words not even photos did it justice to be honest and um, i was blessed by a cambodian monk while i was there and um, that was also an, an incredible experience vietnam is phenomenal because of the people so you would see so people would live in these open houses that you could see into straight off the street so you know how we've got a door? <laughs> um, yeah. Doors and walls weren't really a thing. You would just see straight into their living room and they were happy and they were eating on the street and they would ask you to join them. And it, it was such an incredible experience. So each place I been to has its own quirks that I love. But if I was to choose just one, I'd say Cambodia. Wait, when you said doors and walls like don't exist, do you just mean like, do you mean the bathroom as well? Like how how weird? No, no, no. So <laughs> see, the best way to describe it is it it looks a bit like a garage. Like you could see straight in, like you would where you've got your car, oh, okay. but you could see into their living room, and then everything else would be up the stairs, for instance. Okay. I don't know how I feel about that. I don't. Well, 
I guess it's different because we live here and that just wouldn't work here. But no. <laughs> I guess somewhere there, yeah, it probably does work a bit better, <laughs> at least. It was interesting, to say the least. But yeah, and then in Japan, we had a situation where it was raining torrentially and we didn't have an umbrella with us. And someone ran out of the restaurant, gave us their umbrella and said, you need it more than us? And just left. And I remember standing there with this umbrella thinking, oh, oh my God, did that just happen? <laughs> That's just nice. Yeah. Just yeah, just, too nice. Yeah. Sounds too good to be true. Like, I can't believe the amount of good things that are just happening. Yeah. Someone also walked us all the way to our hotel and we thought she was walking in the same direction. We asked her to show us where the hotel was and then she stopped and walked in the opposite direction. And we went after her and we said, sorry, did you just walk us all the way here even though you had to go in a different way? She said, yes. Like, it was nothing. To be fair to you, Bianca, I actually remember a time after, I think it might have been Smack. Um, <laughs> Are you about and to tell we went... everyone about our night out in Leamington? <laughs> no, I, just, I just remember this one moment where it was after Smack and then a bunch of us went to McDonald's afterwards and then you got like two meals and then on the way back, because we, we lived all like quite far in South Lem, you just dropped off like one of the meals to a homeless person. I remember just thinking, like, what what just happened? That's just nice. Like, he <laughs> just like, yeah, that was just a nice thing to do. Like, you don't see that. Um, so yeah, before I, I give you, a, yeah, it's the, it's the little a bit of credit there. And then, so India actually, yeah. did you go with Sid and Rich? I think, yeah. So we met halfway. It was such a lovely time. It was so nice to see them both again. Did you like meet Sid's family and stuff yes. like that? So we all stayed with Sid. We were just talking about it. I think Rich wanted to go and see Sid in, in India anyway. And I was closer from Hong Kong to India than I would have been if I flew out of the UK to see it again. So I thought, perfect opportunity. Why not? And yeah, stayed with Sid for a few days. I can't remember how long I stayed for. Again, a completely different world. It was yeah. so interesting to see that. It was also fascinating because I, um, I kept getting asked for photos which happens it happened in vietnam it happens in hong kong really but not to the extent it happened yeah. in india oh really and okay. it was, they tell you you look like someone famous like i don't know i think I it might have been rich looking like a bodyguard <laughs> um, yeah maybe because you know he he was just lovely he was always so protective and always made sure that i was okay and you know I, i'm pretty sure he looked a bit like vin diesel so i'm surprised that he was the person <laughs> i was getting asked for photos but yeah it was definitely an experience how how did you feel about that? Because we had one of an episode we had not so long ago was Andy Elliott, who uh, works in Wuhan, and he he spoke about how like people on the streets are just like staring at him and like ask for photos, and then even sometimes just trying to get photos without asking. So I listened to that episode. I thought it was amazing. Andy's got such an interesting life. I think. You get used to it. The first time was in Vietnam and we had a group of students start screaming before they asked for photos. We didn't know what was happening. We just saw them squealing and kind of coming towards us. And we were like, oh, what's going on? Um, and then they said photo and we thought they meant, can you take our photo? <laughs> so we did. And then they were like, no, no, photo with you, photo with you. I don't mind there. You know me. I've got no problem with that at all. I think if people ask, it's fine um yeah. you do get the odd creepy like camera angle where you can see that people are taking photos and you're a bit like oh could you not okay yeah but no i, I don't mind i i've always been curious as to why 
and I've wanted to ask. So for instance, in India, someone handed me their child and I really dislike children. So <laughs> I thought, oh dear God, like I don't know what to do. And there's this child that was crying because it clearly didn't want to be there. And I just thought, I, I don't know what's happening and I don't really know what you're going to do with this photo. So yeah, I'd be interested to know why, but I don't mind it. Yeah, I, I don't. I, it might be like Simon Hamish, like they might just think you're someone famous. Potentially. Um, but I'm I'm not sure, to be honest. I think I'll be like really gassed the first time anyone asks me for a photo. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll be just get really excited and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I'm a bit sad that no one asks me for photos now. Like I'm back in the UK. <laughs> It's so bland, like no going out on rooftops and no being asked for photos. It's, you know, it's not the same life. <laughs> Have you tried like dropping your own picture into Google to see if anyone famous comes up that looks like it? Or So I've been told I look like a few people. Um, I've actually, my claim to fame is that I was recently told I look like one of the Bond girls, which I fundamentally <laughs> disagree with. <laughs> I, I don't think so but and then apparently I look like Sarah Palin <laughs> the, so Sarah Palin that's like I think they might just be going on the glasses and maybe like the hairstyle kind of and the hair colour the hairstyle I can see but I don't know how they're fully trying to say that that's you and apparently when I I spent three weeks in Portugal and turned a completely different colour last summer uh, before I joined Microsoft and apparently, because of that, and the way I looked at that point, I looked like one of the recent Bond girls. I can't remember her name. I'll look it up. To be fair, though, if people in Asia were asking you for a photo, I don't think they were thinking you looked like any of these people. No, neither. <laughs> I don't think so. And then you said you went back to Hong Kong. Yes. So I did a research project. Um, I won an award for one of my essays that I wrote while I was in Hong Kong. And then... I pitched it to Warwick and I did URSS project, the university summer research project. And it was in conjunction with Hong Kong University. So they sent me back with a scholarship. They essentially paid for everything. And I went back to Hong Kong for six weeks last summer. That's cool. It was amazing. I got to go to Guangzhou as well in China as part of that. Okay. And then you also mentioned that was at like the beginning of the protest. Yes. So I landed... In the first week of the protests, I knew what was happening. And so we were told to be cautious and just to be aware of our surroundings. I saw some of the protests, so I didn't go to any of them. But as you walk through certain areas of Hong Kong, you would see the protests happening. And this was at the very early stages. So it would be things like people being on the streets together and singing, or they would close down the the metro, like one side of the metro would be closed to allow the protesters to go through. And it was just people dressed in black t-shirts, peacefully walking around um, and gathering in various places. And I left right as things started getting heated. So what were these protests actually about? So they were about a bill that was an extradition bill that was going to be introduced in the future, which to my knowledge hasn't been introduced currently. And it essentially allows for the extradition of individuals from Hong Kong into China. Okay. And was it, so was it like dangerous at all living there during those No, not for me. So So the six weeks were very peaceful. I didn't feel like I was in danger at all at any point. It was just people gathering in the streets. I think if you didn't really know about it, 
And if you weren't informed, you wouldn't really know what was going on at that stage. Right. It was just people gathering and marching, wearing the white flower that became the symbol of, of the entire movement. And they, they wouldn't interact with anyone. So unless you were wearing a black t-shirt and you wanted to be part of it, no one would bring you in. No one would speak to you about it. It was entirely voluntary and yeah, definitely wasn't in danger at any point. Okay. And was there much difference between like your time in Hong Kong, like to study compared to the time during like the protests? I think it's, it's interesting to, to go back purely because I went back by myself. So after building friendships and, and groups I'll always go out with to go back by myself was definitely a more grown up experience so I found that I didn't really go out that much anymore and if I did it was for sort of the odd cocktail or for dinner which was in itself a very different experience the first time around in terms of the culture and everything I don't think it was necessarily any different I think had I gone a few weeks later it would have definitely been different judging by what was covered in the media but yeah, it was definitely a different experience, but I think for personal reasons rather than what was happening at the time. Do you imagine yourself going back? Again? It's a very good question. I thought about it multiple times. I think when I initially moved there, it felt like forever home. And being away from it now, I think, unfortunately, because of the housing prices, because of it not, you know, the, the culture in companies is different to in the UK naturally I don't know if I'd necessarily move back permanently but I would definitely move back for a few weeks or a few months or a year or two I do miss it every day yeah yeah I imagine like you mentioned earlier how UK might be seem like a bit boring in comparison I think it's the fact that I live in Reading as well which (laughs) for those of you who don't know it's this teeny tiny little place just next to London about 25 minutes away from London there's nothing to do here. Let's face it. I went from traveling Asia to then being at Warwick. But in my final year of school, I went to a lot of countries again to now being here and being a fully functioning working adult stuck in Reading. So, you know, shock to the system. So I'm very lucky in that I can work from anywhere in the world. So I've got flexibility to be, as long as I work the right hours and as long as my customers don't need me here i can be anywhere in the world yeah i was surprised i didn't realize microsoft was in reading um we've got five buildings here and then we've got one building in london okay and you were just placed in reading i guess uh yes because that's where all of the graduates are placed okay Uh, how did that like role come about and microsoft by complete and utter accident so i was in my final year of, of uni i knew that i didn't want to be a lawyer but i didn't know what on earth i wanted to do And then I came across an advert on a social media platform and it said, come to our inside day in artificial intelligence and Microsoft. And I thought, okay, this is great. This is right up my alley. It's it's what I'm interested in. Why not? And I went to this day and I met the chief technology officer in the UK. He was so excitedly talking about the future of AI and where Microsoft fits in and how we're driving it forward. And I remember sitting there thinking, this is it. This is exactly where I'm meant to be. I walked away thinking that there was no way that I could possibly get this job because I didn't have a tech background. And then I remember chatting to someone who worked for Microsoft and she said, why don't you apply? Let us make that decision. Don't make that decision for us. You know, just put an application in. You never know. And so I did. 
I had a Skype interview and then I flew out to Abu Dhabi for a week. And while I was there, I found out that I had the interview, came back, sat the interview. And by the end of December, I found out I had a job, which was the best Christmas present ever. <laughs> yeah. What's like the interview process like? Is it hard? Um, for like something like Microsoft? I, I, well, it might be different from our side of being like someone in computer yeah. science. Like you always imagine like the Googles of the world, Microsoft, Amazon, like really hard to but kind for of... my role, you're not expected to have a technical background or technical knowledge. You're expected to want to learn and to expand your skills and knowledge, but there wasn't a prerequisite I needed to know anything in advance. And so the first, so I, I initially applied with a cover letter and a CV and then I had a Skype interview, which was just general questions about me and, and my drives and my interests and things like what does innovation mean to you and why Microsoft as a company. So just the questions that you'd expect to get. And then there was a one-day assessment center, which was a mix of speed dating. So you'd go around the room and you'd speak to various people from Microsoft and, and they would tell you about what they do and you'd exchange a few words. And then three or four hands-on interviews. So things like scenarios, what would you do if this happened? Things like, how would you pitch this to a customer? So yeah, it was very hands-on. But I think for me, because I had done quite a few law firm interviews and I was always, I always had the same generic answers of why do you want to be a lawyer? And then you'd regurgitate the same thing that you've said over and over again. This was so refreshing because I actually genuinely wanted to be here. I knew that this was the right company for me. I knew that I, you know, I didn't really see myself anywhere else at the time. And so it was, it was easy in the sense that what I said, I genuinely meant. Yeah, for sure. That always helps rather than like kind of bullshitting your way through. You know know what they expect you to say. So you say it because it takes the box like with law firms for me, but with Microsoft, I was like, this is it. I genuinely meant it when I said that I really wanted to work there. And I think it came across that way. And then your role as well, technical account manager. Yes. What does that kind of mean? (laughs) It makes me chuckle that I have the word manager in my role and I'm 25 and it makes it sound very prestigious. So essentially the best way to describe it to anyone is that I'm in charge of several accounts ranging from airports to retail to financial institutions. And my role is to understand them as a business, understand their drives and what they want to do in the next year, two years, five years, so on, and utilize the contract that we have to make sure that they achieve those goals. So I need to build a relationship with them. I need to be trusted. And then the more I understand them and the more they share with me, the better I'm able to do my job and tell them how we can help them. And I also need to build relationships internally so I can pull in the right technical people to assist with that particular company when it's needed. (laughs) Sounds all pretty pretty cool. You've seemed to be like doing a lot of, I guess, from what I see, like on Instagram or anything, like a lot of like event stuff. Yeah. I, re- I remember seeing one you went, it was, I think, fashion. <laughs> yeah, I get asked about this all the time. <laughs> because it was actually funny at the time because I think Wolf and Badger was the uh, yes. shot. I was there. Were you actually? Like, I got an offer from them oh, to work cool. for them. Uh, and I had like an interview there as well in, was it Cold Drops in King's Yard? Yeah, yeah. That's like a really like cool place, but anyway, I that's beyond the point. But yeah, I just thought that was like a really funny coincidence. <laughs> 
Yeah, I was just going to ask about fashion, London Fashion Week, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and like how, yeah, going to like all these kind of will seem like pretty cool events. So I feel like I've got... I'm assuming through Microsoft. No, I had nothing to do with Microsoft. Okay. <laughs> no, no, I've got... So I keep my, my professional life, so my Microsoft life very separate to all of my other lives. That sounds really inconspicuous but (laughs) um and so basically you know works work but then you know while I was in Hong Kong I went to a fashion show and really loved it it was so much fun we kind of just landed there by accident as you do with things in Hong Kong generally and we sat in and we were placed in the front row and that was such an incredible experience and I thought okay I'm really enjoying this like I'd like to continue doing this and I kept in touch with those designers and then when London Fashion Week came there was a an event sponsored by a Hong Kong company and that's how I found out about it. So I initially went to that and then off the back of that, um, I looked into other places and I was invited to the Wolf and Badger one as well and a bunch of other places, but that was completely separate to what I do in my real adult life. (laughs) I would say I have one of the most balanced jobs that I could ask for as long as you you are trusted to do your work because you don't work in a big team with as a technical account manager and because you're trusted with certain accounts you're expected to do your work there's no one standing over you to say oh hey have you done this work what's going on and so it's up to you whether you do your work during the day or whether you'd rather spend the night doing it there's a lot of flexibility there's also flexibility in terms of which office you work from so you can work from home you can work from the Reading office, from the London office, or if you show your badge, you can get into any office around the world. Oh, wow. So yeah, I was also wondering, like, you work within AI, but have you? I don't know if you've ever felt the need to learn to program or want to program or anything. Like, have you ever... I do want to, but that's just a personal thing. So it's not a prerequisite of, of my role, both my current role and, and the role that I'd want to go into. But it's something that I do want to do just generally because I'm interested in it. So... When I was at Warwick, I learned how to code in baby language and HTML. And it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And I thought, hey, why not? Like, just push it further. So I'm, I'm looking at learning how to code in Python. But as you know, it's not easy. So I saw a uh, recently you did like a hackathon. Mm-hmm. Hack for good. Yeah, hack for good. Uh, what was all of that about? So I got looped into that about a day before we were due to do it so I got placed in a random team I literally met them like the night before we did a hackathon and it was basically in aid of COVID affected businesses and individuals um, where we basically built a scenario and a platform for a current issue experienced by either a company or people and so we focused our solution on individuals with that might be struggling with mental health issues at the moment um and we built a bot that would be able to pinpoint the user to useful resources and companies that would be able to help them as well as initiate like an emergency sequence if they pick up on certain words and loop in emergency services if needed well how long was it the 24 hours but we finished it in eight hours okay and did you actually like code it or someone on team code it or is it like a prototype no so we coded it i was in a group of seven people who had phenomenal technical skills that i did not get anywhere near (laughs) at the moment but all of them have very kindly agreed to tutor me in the future so i can get the same skills as them which is amazing what i loved was the fact that 
not everyone was from Microsoft. So it was a mix of, of people from various companies that were working together to find those solutions. It was essentially like almost like a competition between different groups to see who would come up with the best COVID solution. What was the, who won? What was the idea? I don't that think one? the winner has been announced yet. And can you find it online? Like what you guys made? I don't know. It's a very good question. Potentially. I think I saw a YouTube video. Oh yeah, no. So yes, you can because I, <laughs> yeah, I was the voiceover for that. Um, so you. Can- yeah, I, I did listen to it, and I was a bit like, "Wait, is this is this Bianca? Has her voice changed?" Fun fact: my podcast online voice is completely different to my natural voice, and I don't know why that is. And it's not me doing it intentionally. I apparently just switch voices. Hmm. I, I agree. I, I think the same thing with my voice, <laughs> and it's not an intentional thing. It's just like a. You're not even conscious about it. It just happens, I think. I don't know. Or I find anyway. I have a more soothing voice when I do voiceovers and I do in normal life. But in terms of the the solution that we created, so the, the video is online. You can still find it on YouTube. But the, the bot itself hasn't been released. And obviously, we the way we tackled it was, yes, this is an idea and it's a relatively good idea. But we're not mental health professionals in any way. We're not experts and we need to leave this two people who do have the background in that so it's in pre-production i don't know what's going to happen to it it might be given to people who can take that further with the right expertise and then what are like future plans i guess so you're at microsoft at the moment i don't think we shouldn't like say you're going to leave microsoft <laughs> but like, I mean, like... <laughs> not planning on going anywhere no yeah but i guess at the beginning you said like law is kind of still a door there for law but i think so when i was younger I was very adamant that I wanted to be a solicitor and I refused to entertain the idea that I would not be a lawyer. If anyone said this to me, I'd shut them down. I said, absolutely not. This is the life that I want. And then as I grew up and I realized that actually in my 20s, I want a different lifestyle. It's not really what I want to do. It doesn't really resonate with me anymore. I switched to where I am currently. So I know better than to say that this is it and I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm not going to you know, move internally within the company. But yeah, you never really know. Keeping an open mind. There are so many opportunities within Microsoft. They're absolutely phenomenal. And so at the company, it's, there's no hierarchy. Well, there is, but it's not. The way you move in role isn't the same way you would as a lawyer. So you wouldn't go from trainee to associate to senior associate to partner. In Microsoft, you move sideways. So you essentially move from role to role to role. And there's no restrictions okay. on how many moves you can make, on which role you take, as long as you've got the willingness to learn and you've got, you know, you're speaking to the right people and you're building those connections. There's nothing stopping you from going from my role to something really technical. No, that's pretty cool. I guess there'll be a lot of, yeah, if you went to a more technical role, there'll be quite, yeah, encouraging, like in learning on the job kind of thing. Even for my current job, I had to learn on the job. Like when they hired me, very minimal technical skills and they i had six weeks of training when i joined wow yeah okay that's that's yeah quite intense start especially at such a was it quite intimidating like to go start especially for a company like microsoft i guess i remember walking in thinking oh my god i've i've done it i've made it (laughs) and i think i still get this even walking in now well not now because i'm at home but walking in the office i don't think my brain can quite wrap its way around the fact that I work for the company that I really wanted to work for. Um, and I still get that imposter syndrome of walking in thinking, oh my God, why am I here? 
Like how has this happened? And so, yeah, it's, it's constantly, I have to pinch myself and say, Hey, this is, this is great. Especially in the first few weeks, I was just giddy all the time. Is it a bit of a flex as well? Like people ask where you work and you can yeah. say Microsoft. And it's like, she definitely flexes. Wow. Where do you work? And they'll be like, oh, I work for a tech company. And then they won't say where they work. And you're like, okay, but like, where do you work? They're like, ah, oh, you know, just tech company. I don't. I'll be like, I-, I work for Microsoft and it's amazing. And I love it. Like one of the biggest names in tech. So you do get the reaction. Like I still, I, I love the reactions. People are always like, what? Like, like for the <laughs> store. And I'm like, no, no, not for the Microsoft store. Like I work for, Microsoft. Oh, the store. They, um, oh, they assume the store. Yeah. <laughs> I think the biggest pinch me moment so far was when we were sent to Munich for training and we stayed in the most beautiful hotel and, and the training was phenomenal. And we had this lady who was blind and, and went to Harvard to study law. I forgot her name now, but she was the speaker. And I remember sitting there thinking, how is this my life? It's sounding like going from Hong Kong to, and then the amount of travels done and to Microsoft, because it seems like you kind of, I know post-uni life has been really good. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, I'm I'm not going to deny the fact that there are some days where I sit there and think, oh my God, this is, this is hard. And, you know, obviously when you work with people, you are going to get the odd person that's angry on the phone with you, or you're going to get miscommunication or, you know, even within your own team, like it's not always going to be smooth. So. Don't think that I wake up in the morning and I'm like a Disney princess, like singing outside my window, being like, oh, this is great. But, you know, I, I am incredibly grateful for the life that I have, especially with the fact that, you know, I my mom's a single mom. I came to England from Romania, not speaking any English. I was told at secondary school, you know, you might not make it far in life. It is what it is. And to be on the other side, and think, okay, I'm 25 and this is where I am. I am incredibly grateful for, for what I've, I've done and how far I've made it. No, it's super impressive. Especially you said, so you moved to England. What age did you move to England? When I was 12. Okay. So yeah. Okay. I wasn't expecting it to be like that late. I thought it was, cause you said you didn't know any English. So yeah. I thought it was, yeah, much younger, but I knew like the basics of like hello, rough, how would yeah. you things like that, but not enough to be able to yeah. sit my GCSEs the next year. I guess how how was that really? So again, it feels like a lifetime ago looking back at it, but I, you know, you get the whole people bullying you. I had people saying that oh, I don't understand what you're saying because of your accent, even though they could understand what I was saying, or you'd get like the mean kids putting you down and that's that's character building you know that's part of like what (laughs) makes you who you are but yeah it was so I remember having a conversation with my mom and it was something like this is sink or swim so we're here we need to work really hard if we can't do this then we need to go back and so I knew from a from a young age that the most important thing in life was for me to to learn English was to be on my own two feet and work really really hard otherwise I'd have to go back and so nothing mattered when I came in I thought okay I need to learn English now nothing else can be a priority right now so I, I learned it relatively quickly and then again the same with exams like I you know put the bullying to, a, to the side and just ignore everyone and just get your work done whereabouts in England did you live at North London. Oh, wow. 
Can I just say your English is great? Yeah, exactly. I was like, your English may be better than mine. Yeah. I still have odd words that I say with like a slight accent, but no one can tell it's Romanian. Everyone's like, where are you from? <laughs> like, well, just a mix and match now. Oh, wait. I, th- I thought it was quite obvious that you're Romanian. Like, I didn't want to say it, but I thought it was like. <laughs> no, it's not like a rude you thing. You would have guessed Romania. Yeah. I thought I guessed that uni. I think I guessed it. I don't know. It wasn't. I, I think I may have told you. Like, is she Romanian? Like, what? Like, what is she like? <laughs> I'm pretty sure I said this to someone. Like, I'm pretty sure I said this to someone. Yeah. Like, but I think that don't get this rude. Yeah, that this is because like there's a decent proportion of like Romanians that you grow up around here. Like, yeah, and so on. So like Romanians and Polish people and so on. So like, it's not like a surprise to me that oh, I would have been. If that makes sense. Absolutely. And I used to take it personally, I think, for a very long time, primarily because (laughs) I had one of my close friends when I was in secondary school turn around to me and say, I've got two questions for you. And I was like, yeah, go on. And she said, are you a gypsy and do you claim benefits? And I remember (laughs) after knowing her for several years, right? And I remember sitting there thinking, wow, like if this is the assumption that people make about me, then I don't want to be known as Romanian. And so I as soon as I could, I got British passport and I would refer to everyone. Whenever someone asked me where I was from, I'd be like, I'm from England. And, you know, at the end of the day, like I sat the exam that I had to sit and I paid the fee and I've got a British passport. So I'm British. (laughs) But I feel like as I've grown and as I've traveled, I'm a lot more open with the fact that I have dual nationality. And at the end of the day, I was born in Romania and there is nothing wrong with that. I think my issue was that there were a lot of misconceptions around people coming to England from Eastern Europe and doing things that they weren't meant to do because that was what was overwhelmingly covered at that time. To be fair, I wouldn't bl- I wouldn't think that it's your fault. I would think it's more that because London's such a standoff place. <laughs> everyone. I think if you maybe, if you, maybe if it was in another city in the country or something, you would have, I don't know if it would have been any less, but like, I feel like London is not a good example of it. Yeah. Because... So I, I tried to reinvent myself for a very long time and, and get yeah. rid of the Romanian accent and tell everyone that I was born in England. Not born in England, but when they asked me, I wouldn't openly say that I was born in Romania. And then now that I'm at the stage that I'm at in, in life, I'm like, actually, no, I'm, I'm proud of where I come from. I'm proud of where I was born and, and what we've gone through to be able to be here. Oh, I get that. That's why I don't ask people where they're from, because like I feel like it's kind of like offensive <laughs> like to them sometimes. if they. It depends what stage you catch them at but I used to find it irritating because people would be like oh you've got a funny accent where are you from and I'd be like I'm trying so hard to have a British accent and you've just completely knocked me <laughs> down um but I don't take it as an offense now to yeah. where I'm from and then you said you passed the test so that's the is that the British yeah. citizenship so test? I finished my a-levels and then my mom was like you haven't finished exams you're gonna have to sit your passport exam now and I was like okay Let's do this. I disliked it a little bit less and I disliked doing my driving test. I absolutely hate driving. And my my driving test was no, just no. Yeah, (laughs) the citizenship exam was, it was was an interesting experience. It was a a speaking exam, which I don't understand why I had to sit because I had an A-level in English language, an (laughs) A-level at an A grade. And so I went in and put it on the most obnoxious British accent I could to answer those questions just because I didn't understand why I had to do it. And then the second part was a multiple choice 
tests on British history, British geography, a lot of things that I had to learn that I've completely forgotten now. Yeah, we did one for episode four, I think it was, Hamish. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, we did one with James. I'm, I'm pretty sure we failed, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't be able to get a British passport and I was born here. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard, like, especially the history stuff. It's like, yeah, I, I reckon most people in the country wouldn't pass that. No, it definitely isn't easy, but it's, um, you know, to be able to walk away and say, hey, I've got dual nationality. Like I said, I would retake it today if I had to just to keep yeah. the passport. I think it's, it's worth it. So you got a lot of like family back in Romania? So my grandparents back in Romania, they wouldn't move. They never would. Um, my uncle, aunt and cousins are in England and my other uncle and aunt are in Italy. So no, one okay, of my grandparents are still in Romania and some distant family that we're not very close to. Are they all like doing well? Yeah. Like safe with yeah. COVID and everything? We've uh, we've asked them to to follow the rules and stay inside and everything. My granddad is this very energetic human that will always go outside. So he's been struggling a bit with being inside, but they're okay. They're doing well. How are you coping like with all the traveling oh, and then all of a sudden traveling just <laughs> it's, like, um, off? So I almost got stuck in Amsterdam, funnily enough, right before this started. So I was meant to be in Amsterdam that weekend where they closed the borders. Obviously I could have come back because they, you know, it would have been an emergency thing. So I'm, I'm glad I'm here, but it's definitely an, an adjustment. Yeah because I'm so used to traveling and there's so many plans that got canceled, but I'm okay. Hmm. I'm glad that I'm, you know, I'm glad that I'm not ill. And I think, you know, probably the worst is hopefully over now. So do you think traveling will kind of like return back it's a very good to question. some form of normality? I was looking into this and I heard that at the beginning of next month, flights to Iceland will be available and they'll have Corona testing as you enter the country. Okay. So I'd go. I mean, because I haven't seen I quite like a COVID test yeah. just to know if I've had it or not. But I think the issue isn't with being able to travel. It's with the quarantine period. So traveling isn't going to be a quick weekend getaway anymore. It's going to be a commitment of at least two to three weeks. And then when you come back, you'll have to quarantine. So in my case, I don't live alone. I've got a flatmate and I wouldn't be able to do that because I couldn't come back and put other people in danger. Mm. Yeah. And you also touched on Abu Dhabi. Yes. There is a story there. I, <laughs> I almost died in Abu Dhabi. What? Yeah. Aaron knows. Um, <laughs> so basically, I went to a concert. So I went for the Grand Prix. I was really lucky of a friend of mine, her dad works in some capacity linked to the Grand Prix. So we got invited, which was an absolutely incredible experience to be able to see the races from above is again the photos don't do it justice the sound of those cars is something mm. else and as part of that we got to go to a few concerts um and we were lining up and there were a lot of people around us we arrived a little bit later than we normally would and um as we as we were standing in in the in the queue it kind of just wasn't really a queue anymore it was just a gathering of people and security came out and said we're not letting anyone else in we're full to capacity and people just started getting very angry. And I remember turning to my friend and we were laughing about how this could turn into a disaster and how we should probably get out of there. But we, at no point did we think we'd actually be in any sort of danger. And at one point, we had about 100 people in front of us and about 200 people behind us. 
and you couldn't move at all. Like you were packed together and someone got on top of, of something and started shouting push. And then we saw the gate go down in front of us. Metal gate just completely went down and people started running. And I can honestly say I wasn't walking anymore. Like my legs weren't working. They were working because other people were pushing me. I had no control over them whatsoever. And then someone in front of me tripped. And obviously, you know, for a fact that in big crowds and in situations like these, the most important thing is not to fall because you fall, people will trample on you. And I fell. I tried to like fall to the side so I wouldn't fall on the person in front of me. So my knees were on the floor and I fell and I fell with my arms underneath me. So I couldn't move. And then someone else fell on top of me. And so my face was getting squished and I couldn't breathe properly, but my knees were on the ground. And so every time someone else fell, it would push me further on my knees on the ground. So I could feel my skin going and I also couldn't breathe. And so I thought, this is it. And I remember my first thought was, I will not die before my interview for my job. Like I refuse <laughs> to, um, which is not the right thought to have in that situation. And then I remember a hand kind of coming in and just dragging me from, from where I was. And it was security that got us out. And I, I couldn't believe what just happened. I, I was standing there. I had blood all over me. And I just didn't know how to react. I remember sitting down thinking, oh, my God, this is, I could have died. Like, there were people on top of me, and I could feel myself getting crushed and not being able to breathe. And there was nothing I could do about it. So there you go. I'm, I'm, picturing, I'm picturing, like, Jon Snow at the Battle of Bastards. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, man. So, no, that's, uh, the only wow. thing I can, like, even imagine comparing to that is, like, I know queuing for downstairs smack <laughs> <laughs> so yeah no that, that must have been like yeah it was it was scary I, mean, it was I think scary. sometimes you don't realize what kind of danger you're in because i think what frustrates me every time is the fact that we were joking about the fact that we might be in danger and we didn't do anything about it we just sat there mm. and we were laughing and we were like ah what are the chances that would actually happen and then you see it happening and you think right there's nothing i can do now but yeah what about uh, your friend then we're all, we're all okay. There were four of us yeah. that went. I think one of us was quite shocked, took it a little bit harder than everyone else. But it's also just seeing, so the, the first girl that went down, um, everyone else fell on top of her and she was actually brought out on a stretcher. We don't really know what happened to her. And then someone else had a panic attack or, uh, no, sorry, they had an epilepsy attack. And again, they were taken in the ambulance. The army was deployed. So that was interesting. I remember sitting down. So my, my bag went flying. I couldn't find it anywhere. And I thought my passport was in my bag. So I was panicking. And I remember asking for help. And they sat me down. And I all I could see was just a wall of, of army in front of me, stopping people from coming in because people were still trying to come in. And they had to just put a stop to it. And I was sitting on the the little scanning machine where you put your bag through because they didn't know where else to put me and my knees were bleeding, um, waiting to see if someone could find my bag. So I think it's probably one of those where you can't even... It's just hard to describe how probably bad it was at the I mean, time. It was bad enough for me to call my mum from Abu Dhabi, <laughs> not caring about <laughs> the phone charges. I was like, whatever yeah, happens. That's happens. like a last resort. Because I thought it was going to be on the news because it was such a big concert and it was a well-known artist. And the army was deployed. We thought, 
you know, it's going to be on the news. It's bound to be on the news. And so I didn't want my mom to think that something had happened to me. And so I just called her to, to say, who's the artist? The weekend. Okay. Oh, wow. wow. Wait, you went to Abu Dhabi to see the weekend? <laughs> no, I went to Abu Dhabi to see the Grand Prix. And then oh, okay. in addition to that, we had access to the concerts. So we had access to Guns N' Roses, the weekend, Post Malone, who I didn't know about what? until Abu Dhabi. And I absolutely adore <laughs> him now. I think he's such a great artist. Um, oh, and French no, Montana yeah. actually showed up on stage as well at one point. So it was definitely a once in a lifetime experience. I'm very grateful. Wait, you didn't know Post Malone until you went Abu Dhabi? I didn't know who Post Malone was. That's the irony. I had no idea who it was until he came on stage. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's a familiar song. I feel, I feel like life is kind of like who you know. It is, largely. Just like making, yeah, the most of that. Or like a lot of your opportunities come from people you know yeah. and contacts and all that. Absolutely. And it's, it's the same with anything, really. Like people say it's not what you know, it's who you know. I think it's a mix of both because obviously when you're working, you need to have a set level of knowledge to be able to get anywhere, but also who you know will yeah. make an impact. Actually, one one thing I did want to touch on before we uh, close the episode. Yeah. So you told, as you said, there's a documentary about you. Indeed. Claim to fame. Cool. <laughs> so, Exclusive. fun fact, I was born at six months instead of nine. I weighed 850 grams. I'm going to have to do the conversion here because I know that people keep asking me this all the time. So I weighed 1.87 pounds. What is the weight of an average baby? So the weight of an average baby is around two point something kilograms, and I weighed eight hundred and fifty okay. grams. So if you think of a kilogram of sugar, I weighed less than that. Mm-hmm. Did you also like? Did they leave you in those? I don't know if it's called like an incubator. Yeah, yeah. So okay. that's why I wear glasses. Is because the um, the oxygen from the incubator ruined my eyesight. Well, to some extent. And because I was born prematurely, they didn't think I was going to be alive. And apparently the doctor was shouting, like, get a sterile table. She's she's alive. They didn't think I would be. My mum had to stay in the maternity for four months with me to bring me up to the correct four number months. of kilograms to be able to leave. And because I was the tiniest baby, I was also christened in the hospital. So my godmother is one of the nurses. I'm not religious in any way, um, but that's like a bit of a fun fact. Oh, wait, the godmothers, so it's not like you didn't know the nurse before. We, d- we didn't know the nurse, it's just a random nurse. She just had to be the godmother. Yeah, because there's she no one else around. And oh, um, no. yeah, because I was the tiniest little baby, there was a documentary about me. It's in Romanian, it's somewhere. Oh. I think we've got it on VCR. Can you get subtitles? I'll definitely try and find it. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> the problem is when they filmed it, I was already bigger than it's on Amazon Prime, one. Netflix. Was it like news at the time? Like how come it was made into like a documentary? I think there was a documentary about either about like the the medical system or about the premature babies at the time. And it turned into a documentary about me because I was so small. <laughs> uh, what, do you know what the what it's called? No, but I, I we've got it. Oh, wow. It would be in Romanian anyway. It was on this channel called Tele M. So if you want to look for it, yeah. please do, because we haven't been able to, to find it. We've got it on a vcr that's now been turned into a dvd somewhere but yeah i'm actually gonna i'm sure there must be a it'll be online somewhere somehow it'll be oh, online, i hope so i'll have to get to work but yeah so i i always kind of live my life with the assumption that there is a reason why i'm here and again not in like an mm-hmm. overly spiritual or like religious way but you know 
I mean, if I survived weighing 850 grams, there must be a reason. And it also means that my mom and I have an amazing relationship and a bond because, you know, I'm so grateful for what she's done. That's really nice. Do you uh, speak to your godmother? No. No? No. I I, oh, I actually true. wonder what happened to her. I think she was in my life briefly when I was very young. But... No, that's that's cool. That's that's. I mean, there's nothing as cool as that. I can I can say <laughs> Wait, about myself. How does how does having a godmother work? Like, so you normally it will be like a family friend or basically mm-hmm. a trusted person in the event of like your parents passing away. It's normally the godparents that take over the the child. But in Romania, it's more of like a religious thing so you've got to have a godmother that's just how it is and because i had to be christened in the maternity it had to be any nurse that could do it apparently my grandma knew that i was going to survive when the priest gave me the wine and i just took it <laughs> just, just went it. for it wait as in you drink what so basically wait, when you I... get christened they put a little bit of wine with like a little bit of bread on a tiny little teaspoon and they give it to the baby don't ask and is that a Romanian thing? Because I was christened, but I don't... I've never heard, uh, heard of it's that. A Romanian Aaron would have been laid out cold, bro. He would have been knocked out. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So, uh, so yeah, apparently that's what I've been told. I've been told that the reason why my grandma thought that I, I would definitely survive was because I took that wine. Uh, yeah, no, that's, that's super cool. And that's probably why I've got high tolerance to alcohol now and I would drink cocktails. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> won't, won't argue. Especially like all those free drinks in Hong Kong must have been... Yeah, my tolerance is very high. Easy. I think even now, like when I go out, I'll have a whiskey on the rocks and people are like, is this a joke? I'm like, no, you know, <laughs> built up a tolerance. I've never had a hangover in my life, ever. Uh, I remember going like some of the times when I was at work in San Francisco and then we'd go for like drinks after work. And I was only at really small startups. So it was just me, my boss, the CEO and like the CTO. And we'd go to like a bar and i was the english guy mm-hmm. i was i was a british guy who like drinks a lot you know because i'm british obviously stereotype so then they they would have like straight whiskey and then they'd be like what do you want and i was like yeah yeah sure i'll, I'll have that <laughs> and then i'm just there with both of these like adults just sitting there i'm just like yeah drinking whiskey with them trying to like hide anything like any emotions towards the whiskey and just be like yeah i can I can handle this. It depends easy. what kind of whiskey you drink. There's some amazing ones. There's others that wouldn't recommend. So you know, start with the the ones that are infused with honey, and they're easier to to go down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sounds good. But yeah, cool. I don't know if either of you had anything you wanted to add on. No, I think that's a, this has been an amazing life story. Like you, oh, it's one of those things that you can't. You would literally have to say like, it's not possible. Well, and then someone exists. it is i mean to add to that i once had a teacher that told me that the reason why i wasn't getting the right grades predicted to go to cambridge was because i needed to learn the dreams don't come true she was wrong <laughs> like what i don't why do people say that like what what is the need what what is that done for her maybe they like try and give you the kick in the butt i don't know i've been trying to justify some of the things teachers said to me as well don't worry so i've been like trying to figure out like is there like a mo- motive behind it sometimes like i think do they just people forget that teachers are human so like you can catch them on a bad day and they might have had an argument mm. with their husband at home and they bring it into school because there's no way to separate the two and sometimes they just will do things like this 
And I think the sad thing is, depending on what your personality type is or how you deal with situations like these, a kid would have just been put down by that and and could have never recovered. You just don't know how your words are going to land. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. I copy what Hamish says, like coming to England, like not knowing the language at like 12 and then, yeah, doing everything you've done is like pretty, pretty incredible. Thank you. But yeah, let's uh, start to round off the episode. We uh, end it with three final questions and a few other bits. So I guess I'll start it off. The first question is, if you had the chance to make a documentary, what would it be about? Okay, so to avoid the cliche of saying that I'd probably do something to do with traveling or, you know, going into tribes that have said no to technology and no to to being in the Western idea of like the world. I think what I would actually do a documentary about would be based on a book that I've recently read called Algorithms to Live By. And it's the idea that you can alter your thought process and remove emotion from your decision making. So you would make decisions like a computer would and make more accurate decisions by doing that. So I think there's a lot of information on this, but it's all in written format and quite hard to digest. So I'd probably want to do a documentary based on on that and how different people think and how they process ideas and make decisions. Awesome. Yeah, we'll put the link to that book in, in the really show notes. Book. And the second one is, what is one piece of advice you would give to your younger self? Don't listen to teachers. No, um, <laughs> not getting into Cambridge is not the end of your life. Like I still remember getting that rejection and thinking, oh my God, I will never be successful. I will never be able to do anything. And now looking back at it, I can see exactly the reason why I didn't get in. And I'm so happy that I didn't. It definitely wasn't the right place for me. Um, and I would have never made it to Hong Kong had that happened. So I think that's one of them. I think what seems like the end of the road is never really the end of the road. It just pushes you in a different direction. And the second one would definitely be teachers are human don't take what they say to you as you know at, at face value yeah for sure third and yeah this is a question we ask every guest <laughs> and that is what has been your most memorable third wheeling experience Joe, this is actually a really hard one because I, I was thinking about this and i've because i'm the only single well one of the only single people in my friendship group i tend to just always be a third wheel especially when my friends like go out with their boyfriends and it's just me like hey guys <laughs> but I do you know what it's it's a great experience regardless I have a lot of fun I think my most memorable third wheel experience was as a child I've always gotten on better with adults so with people that are yeah, older cool. than I am and also I've always gotten on better with guys over girls it's just the way I'm wired and so my mom always used to say that people would call me her purse because I would tag along to every single adult outing there was. I would just refuse to not be part of it. And so as a child, I was a permanent third wheel to any coffees that she went to, any family, but I'd always be there. <laughs> so my family still laugh about it. Her, her friends still laugh about it. There you go. That's quite interesting. They're like, yeah, the, you think you have just always got along better with adults. Yeah. Like even as a kid. I feel like I tend to people used to think I was a lot older when I was younger that makes no sense mm. you know what I mean like people used to think that mm -hmm. I was you know, like you're like, mature yeah, you're exactly right. and so it's always interesting I do feel like even now 
I don't feel like I'm 25. I do feel like I'm older. Okay. That's old soul. That's mad. Um, and the next section is a call out or call out. If you'd like to nominate a few people or a single person to maybe come onto the third wheel, who would you nominate? I've got two people for you. So I met someone called Maddie in my final year of university. She lived in halls with me. She is an absolutely incredible person. And she's got, if you think my life story is, is great, you should hear hers. I'm not going to give away anything else. I'll, <laughs> let, I'll let her tell her story. But she is one of the kindest, loveliest people I have ever met. And she is largely the reason why I kept my sanity in final year. She used to run into my room with her little ukulele and sing me songs and always make sure I was okay. And, and that's as she is. One of the most positive, phenomenal people I've ever met and her life story is truly incredible. I'll send you her name, the full name after. Yeah. And then my other suggestion is a guy called Samo. I met him in Hong Kong. He is a lot of fun. He, again, was a large part of why I loved Hong Kong so much. Um, he's a great person and I definitely think you should have both of them on, on your show. Okay, yeah, awesome. We will uh, reach out to them and hopefully get them on soon. Last bit is a shout out so each one of us can just shout out basically basically whatever we want. It can be a song, a film, something, some food, a restaurant, or something you've worked on recently. Hamish, got anything? Yeah, my standard music shout outs are gonna be for a song by Jonah Lucas called Will and the remix with featuring Will Smith. <laughs> because yeah, those are some quality songs and the music video behind Will is amazing. So yeah, definitely go check them out if you haven't already heard of it or seen it. Okay, uh, I'm going to shout out an article we did. Well, not article we did, but an interview we did uh, with a modern influencer. So, and they just basically interview influencers, I guess, online. I don't think we are influencers, up, really. I don't consider myself an influencer, but he reached out to us and yeah, did a little interview with them. And it's just kind of, we chat a bit about the podcast, how it started, our future plans and yeah just other bits about the podcast so yeah go check that out and yeah bianca anything Ooh, so in terms of food let's do this because it hasn't been covered i recently came across a brand called Ombar, and it's the best chocolate i've ever had in my life this is not sponsored i don't know them personally but it's out <laughs> and they do um bags of broken bars so instead of selling them they sell them in packaging like if you want to gift them to someone but they sell them in like brown paper bags and it's just essentially bars of chocolate that aren't beautiful enough to be sold separately so it's environmentally friendly and it's vegan and it's absolutely amazing okay cool oh you can't get this from sainsbury's right no you can't you need to order them online oh shit that's um, fancy <laughs> yeah thank you uh so much bianca for coming on thank you thanks for having me yeah not at all and yeah hope everyone has enjoyed the episode and i guess we'll just speak to you next week bye yeah. bye